Good morning. Good morning. I'll be reading Acts 16, verses 16 to 40, um, and that's page 1684 in the Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us, Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately, he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now, do they wanna get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. Thanks, Judica. Hey, everybody. Um, hopefully I'm doing a little bit better. I, I was in sick in bed Thursday and Friday. Thursday is my writing day. So um, you might have to listen a little bit harder today because it's, 
it's not going to be slick. I think I got the, I thought, I think I got the points together. Um, I did want to say, um, man, it has been tough to see Steve Tadovich and now Paul um, and Barb Morin um, move to Minneapolis, both to be close to family and to maybe have some better opportunities. Um, but it was so great to be to explore this Tuesday and to be with 20 really cool people, met five or six of whom had moved from Minneapolis here, and that's just how God moves his people around. So um, I hope that God really blesses them in Minneapolis. Um, and we have to be open-handed in hugging and releasing the people who God brings in and out of Madison. Our calling is to bless the whole world by being a substantive church in a transient city. Think about how many people we can bless, by how many people will come through here. Um, when you ask the question, which is sort of the basic question of the Christian faith, how do we live intentionally as substantive disciples of Jesus with the kingdom of God in mind? What happens when we really are doing that? How, how, is, the, how is the world around us going to respond to us? I mean, what's going to happen? I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with somebody who said that they're, I'm going to do something for God, and it's going to, I know it's going to go great because God is, I'm doing it for God. And I always fear for people who think that because um, they haven't read the book of Acts, clearly. You know, I mean, that nobody would, I mean, nobody would get that from this passage. You might read this passage and be like, I know what the sermon title should be. It should be something like, Paul and Silas's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it's really a tough situation. And one of the things I think that's really important for Christians to recognize is that um, be facing human ruthlessness is not, is not a surprise. It's not weird. It is exactly what we should expect every day. It should never throw us or surprise us. It's, it's normal. It's, uh, some people will look at this passage and, and, and be like, well, you know, Paul never got in this trouble when he went around with Barnabas, the son of encouragement. I mean, maybe he's, he's a jerk. Listen, Luke tells us exactly why this happened. He, and it was not Paul was a jerk. It was when he exercised the demonic oppression of a slave girl. The greedy owners of that girl got angry, and because of their greed, created a legal problem for them. That's what happened. And the reality is we, we have to, in some ways, stop allowing people to get us to feel like we're being mean when we say stuff they don't like. Okay? When you start taking responsibility for how other people respond to things— that is not kindness. That is a psychological problem called codependency or something like that. Ask a psychologist after the service. Like you, I, I've, I've said a number of times, in many ways in relationship to other people, it is our responsibility to be their ally in whatever is their responsibility to do. But we can never take responsibility for what it's their responsibility. So a husband is supposed to be faithful to his wife. That is his responsibility. And she can make it a lot easier, right? She can be his ally. A child is supposed to obey his or her parents. But Paul can say to fathers, don't exacerbate your children. You can make it easier for them to obey you. You're, we're supposed to be good citizens. But the way the police police us and the way our governing authorities govern us, they can make it a joy for us 
to be submissive as citizens rather than angry. Everybody has to be responsible for what is their responsibility. And it can still be our job to be an ally to them for them to fulfill their responsibility. But we can't take responsibility for what they do or don't do. Otherwise, we will stop doing what is our responsibility. You see, if you really believe that the way people respond to an intentional life lived with Jesus in mind, if you really believe it is your responsibility to control the outcomes of how other people receive you, you will stop living an intentional life for Jesus with the kingdom of God in mind. You will stop doing your job. You will stop with the speaking because you have mistakenly believed it is your job to control the hearing. You can't do that. You can bend over backwards out of sacrificial love to try to be the best ally that you can be in helping people hear what you must say well. And that is an outworking, that is a responsibility of love. But love demands that you do the speaking you must do. Paul said it this way later when he would write 2 Corinthians. He said, about himself and people ministering with him. For we are, to God, the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. To one we are the smell of death, to other we are the fragrance of life, and who is equal to such a task. Right? That is, I mean, think about that. Why the sentence, and who is equal to such a task? You probably could spend all afternoon profitably thinking about that. Why say that? Right? He says it's, it's just a fact that before God, we live for Christ and talk about Jesus, and people respond in a very binary fashion because Jesus assaults and affronts all things. And so human heart is full of idols. And when King Jesus comes in and says, none of these are real, none of these are truly God, I am truly God, there, is, there are only two responses to that. Rejo- being threatened, being broken, and then rejoicing, or being threatened, feeling threatened, and then attacking. Jesus is a very threatening figure. And people will either respond ultimately with realizing that he is a fragrance like one they have never smelled and yet somehow forgotten. He is the one that shows them who they were meant to be, and so they really find who they were, who they were always created to be. Or, He is the one who threatens and attacks everything we hold dear. People don't just go, eh, to Jesus. If they do that, they're bluffing. Or they're not listening. Does that make sense? Or you're not being clear. (laughs) Probably because you're trying to control the way they're going to hear what you say. When we think about intentionally living as substantive Christians with the kingdom of God in mind, we need to recognize that what that means is our substantive faith is going to face human ruthlessness with a gracious boldness. We're going to face human ruthlessness with gracious boldness. Okay, so there's three things to talk about related to this. The first is, is that human ruthlessness can never throw us because it should never surprise us. Human ruthlessness, it really can never throw us because it should never surprise us. In economics, there's this um, phrase that you hear them say um, that is this, man bite, or dog bites man. And people say that as kind of like this joke that it's kind of like a headline in the news, dog bites man, and like everybody should expect that, right? I mean, I don't care how nice your dog is, dogs bite people, 
You go back enough generations and they're wolves. Like, when you teach a kid how to re- relate to a dog, like, I'm re- I love kids around dogs, but you better teach the kid how to be around a dog because it's a dog. And you better be like, okay, if they wag their tail, that's good, and you need to put your hand out first, and don't just walk up and touch a dog that doesn't already see you, and you need to read his body language and see if the hair on the back of his— is, like, you need to teach kids to read dogs. Why? Because they need to understand that dogs are not people, and they're not cats, and they're not gerbils. They are a very specific kind of thing. And if you relate to them in relationship to reality, you probably never get bit by a dog in your life. And, but if you don't know what a dog is— you know what's going to happen? You're going to get bit, and you're going to be shocked. And you're, they're going to kill the dog when they should punch the parent. Right? And because there's a big difference between expecting people to always do their worst and understanding what people are and understanding the range of possibilities you may very well get from them. Right? In, um, in Romans 1, there's this place where Paul is talking about what happens when, when human beings reject the knowledge of God, which he says is made manifest through creation. Like, there, there's no excuse to know a little bit about God. That is, that God is there, and that we should be thankful towards him, and that should affect us morally. Paul says you should be able to get that just from creation, from the, the humanness of human beings, and from the the creation that we experience. And he says, there, furthermore, since they do not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And there's this whole list of sins ending with they invent ways of doing evil, so their creativity is kind of pointed in the wrong direction, right? God gives them creativity. Instead of, instead of inventing ways to do good, they use that God-given creativity to invent ways to do evil, including the least original. They disobey their parents. And then these four words, they are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. The process of human damnation, of rejecting a knowledge of God, turning in on ourselves, and internally hollowing out spiritually because of that, ultimately produces an increasing amount of those four things. A senselessness, an inability to see reality as it is, and having to fit our interpretation of reality into what must be true to affirm what we are thinking about ourselves. A faithlessness, an unwilling to see God for who he is and what God says to be true. A heartlessness, a breakdown of the nature of true human um, empathy. We just stop seeing other people as people, and we start seeing them as something else, probably a means to some kind of end of our own. And a ruthlessness. A self-focused, intuitive, reactive way of being insensitive to moral truth or God's reality. We just, when we're threatened, we bite. Dog bites man. And that is, what Paul is saying is is that without grace, that becomes normative for human beings. And when people act like that, it should never surprise us. And now when I say that, you might be like, why are you talking about that? It's because if you read this passage carefully, it is one of the major themes of the passage. There are six clear examples of human ruthlessness where something is happening, threatening something that they hold, 
And they just respond to protect their thing, and they will do anything with the human beings in front of them in order to maintain their idol, right? So first is a slave girl, and she is being controlled demonically, and the demon wants to, what? Attack the gospel, undermine the truth, follow a path of lying. That's really—that one's simple, right? The slave—the slave owners are clearly— the issue is greed. Their idol is money. It produces the idolatry of greed, and so they will treat Paul and Silas however is fitting to protect or to fight back and to make them pay for the profit that they limited. The magistrates, instead of actually providing justice, they choose order over justice, because who cares about these foreigners? What matters is, is this city in order? Are these people who are complaining going to like me? And what should I do? It's really easy to beat half to death a couple of foreigners and then throw them out of your city. What are they going to do? But the people in the mob will like me. The officers, lest you think, well, they're just in the chain of command and like they probably didn't even want to beat these guys, but they probably did it. Yeah, well, guess what? The guy with the rod in his hand gets to decide how bad the beating is. And what did Luke say? After they had been whipped severely, there are two ways to whip somebody. There is fulfilling your duty, 39 or whatever legitimate, and there are, you can, you can hit that nerve group and you can, you can whip your wrist like this and you can, you can open up the flesh like that. Right below the shoulder blade, it'll just snap open if I hit him just like this. And we know from later in the passage that they had lots of wounds that had to be dressed. So don't think the officers were innocent in this. They were not. And then you have the jailer who throws them. He, they're, they're like, listen, you need to protect this guy. And so he's like, oh, I'm on the line for this. So he puts them in the best cell and the stocks for his feet. He makes sure they're not going anywhere. And he does not treat them like human beings whose wounds should be dressed. <laughs> he puts them in stocks where they either can't sit down or they're seated on the floor and they can't lay back because their backs are torn open. What they can't do is lay on their front because they're in stocks. Because... These guys who have such a criminal record probably can't get away. And then you have the crowd just being a mob. They don't, they don't have a clue what's going on. They're like, yeah, let's beat up these foreigners. That sounds fun. And the whole thing is just reeks of like a, like nationalistic racism, right? They, they say, these Jews came to our city and they tell us to do things that are not good for good Romans to do. Right? In each case, every group proves they don't care about the humanity of the people in front of them. They don't care. They're heartless and they're ruthless. And it doesn't throw Paul and Silas. You know how this day ends? With them mad at God, yelling at the walls of the prison cell, God, I can't believe you did this. I was doing something for you. Why didn't you make this work out? Like, you remember Luke writing that in chapter 16? Right? He doesn't. What, what are they doing? They're sitting in the stocks while their backs are like tensing up and like getting stiffer and they're probably still with like a throbbing pain and they're praying and they're singing hymns to God. And the prisoners are listening to them. You see, they were not, they were not surprised by this. Paul's not surprised by this. He remembers what he was like. And so, as Christians, 
We should never be surprised when we live with the kingdom of God in mind that people would treat us ruthlessly. The message that's flowing out of us is very—it's terrifying. It's very aggressive. It, it attacks all of our idols, our idols, everybody else's. We're saying all the things that you've put your hope in, Jesus is going to wipe away or judge you ultimately for claiming that they are God instead of him. That is not something people go, oh, that's really kind of interesting. Let's have coffee. It is a terrifying message. And people will usually respond out of fear and out of anger and out of pride. They will respond viscerally and they will try to do something about it. And we should also never wonder that people act ruthlessly against people who are susceptible to it. The poor, the weak, people who because of their position can't lash out back, like like administrative—like officer—like police officers and administrative officials that you can say anything you want about them publicly and they can't say back what you are for doing it. There's all kinds of different people that are susceptible to ruthlessness, and it should never surprise us when they're treated ruthlessly. And the other thing is that it really shouldn't surprise you when you act ruthlessly. Because for every idol that you permit— to remain in you. Every love that isn't rooted in Jesus, everything that is about you, everything that makes you feel like who you are, that you're good enough, you're tough enough, you can get comfort in this thing, you have security in it, whatever that is that isn't Jesus is an affront to Jesus' lordship. And whenever anyone attacks it, whether it's Jesus or whether it's something in the world, you should not be surprised that in your heart comes out of fear and out of anger and out of self-justification comes a reaction. You're talking with your spouse and all of a sudden you're mad and it's hot and you're having an argument. Your kid disrespects you and now you're yelling disproportionately and you're not on point anymore. Right? You have a job where you are not in charge and you do not focus on working as hard as you can under the proper authority of that work to produce the highest financial and functional good to the person who has done the grace of employing you. Or vice versa, that you employ someone and seek only to extract from them, and if they don't do what they're supposed to, you are enraged against them. Whenever somebody attacks our little idol, no matter, in so many different ways, you, we, you and I should not be surprised. Our own ruthlessness is a window to our areas of the need of the gospel to change us. And we shouldn't be surprised when we see it in ourselves and in each other. The difference is, is that we're supposed to have the right to go after it in each other. In John's Gospel, chapter 15, Jesus wanted to make really clear that not all of the persecution and ruthlessness that we will face will be our fault. In fact, he doesn't really talk about that at all. Isn't that interesting? That Jesus very rarely says anything like, you know what, you're, you're going to be jerks and people are going to attack you, and so you should not be jerks. There's stuff he says about love more broadly, but when he talks about persecution, the theme is always, it's not your fault. You're doing what I told you to do. It's going to happen. Right? So in John 15, he says, listen, I did it right. He's like, I'm kind of the God-man incarnate. And he's like, I did it right. And they persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. You do everything right, people are still going to hate you. And they're going to tell you, now Jesus doesn't say it this way, but they're going to tell you it's your fault. Just like every guy who beats up on a girl. It's somehow her fault, right? 
and just anybody who's ruthless against anyone always finds a way to believe it's their fault and to tell them it's their fault. I don't know, it's, it's kind of astounding that most high schoolers don't know who Stalin is, but I still grew up during the USSR, and I was taught, even in the public schools, about the totalitarian regimes of the 20th century. But I didn't know till a few years ago, I was listening to a talk on Stalin. There was something about Stalin that not only was he going to kill you if he didn't think you were on his side, he was going to get you to sign a confession that it was your fault and you deserved it. In fact, there's one confession that um, was not in public view years of a general that Stalin thought wasn't really on his side enough. And they beat him so ruthlessly half to death to get him to sign it that his own blood is splattered across the page of his own confession. And then sort of like this, there's this scrawled signature on it. Just so Stalin, when he murdered this guy, could hold up publicly a sheet of paper that said that he signed his confession. It's okay for me to kill him. Everyone who ever acts ruthlessly against anyone has their own little airtight argument about how it's their fault. And do not allow yourself to enter into the slave-mindedness of believing that. That half of the guilt consciousness of Christians in culture that allows us to accept that we're supposed to shut up comes from that kind of mentality. And how weak are we to believe it emotionally and personally? And how willing to be drawn into an abusive relationship where they get to slap you and tell you it's your fault. Do not be surprised at human ruthlessness. In fact, Peter explicitly says this in 1 Peter 4. Right? He's writing to the church. He says, listen, friends— do not be surprised at the painful trial. And he's referring to, to persecution here. People attacking Christians. For being, don't be surprised at the painful trial that you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Do you see the idea here? Not only is he saying what Jesus said, he's saying, listen, why would you even be surprised about this? Don't act surprised. Like, why is this happening? God, why would you let this happen to me? Are you kidding me? A Christian can't dwell in the land of functional naivety about what human nature is like, either about ourselves or about our neighbors or about how the weak or the susceptible to ruthlessness would be treated in our culture. It, once you have eyes to see it, friends, you won't say things like, you know, 80% of people are good and then 20% of people make problems. That is not true. The world is full of people who will get away with as much ruthlessness as they think they can get away with including us. And we all need the gospel incredibly desperately to pull away the idols that motivate that ruthlessness and to replace it with the Christ who is truly Lord to us. Second thing is, I better keep moving here, sorry. Is that um, we are meant to offer very bold graciousness when there is a broken oppressor. When, when anybody engages in ruthlessness against us and somehow the power of God or the grace of God or circumstance or something happens that the law does its work and they realize their true state and they are in a place to release it. At that moment, we are called to allow a graciousness to rush in boldly and immediately with no hesitation. And that is a much greater 
a much greater test to our true character than whether or not we're surprised by ruthlessness. Not being surprised by human ruthlessness is just like accepting reality and not being terrifyingly naive about human nature. But what the Bible also says, besides that we are affected by a depraved condition, it also says that Jesus came to seek and save those who are lost. It also says that the Holy Spirit has been shed abroad to the hearts of people and that he has come to bring conviction and a realization of sin for what it is and to draw people who are ruthless of heart, which is everyone, to a place of repentance and understanding this. And, and when that happens— if there is no hope for grace, the normal human response is self-destruction. You see this with the jailer. When it says, um, at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundation of the prison were shaken, and at once all the prisoners' doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose, and the jailer woke up. And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. That's standard Roman law. The, 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 the way to keep jailers from taking bribes and releasing prisoners is saying, we don't know what happened, is to say, if they get away, you're dead. Right? And so that was standard Roman law, that if you lose prisoners, you die. And so when this whole prison opens up, this guy kind of knows— he deserves this, doesn't he? And he realizes this has happened. It's over. Either God is going to kill him or the, or the officials are going to kill him. But it's, it's over. He realizes he's lost. And at that moment, he has no hope of grace. There's no, there's no alternative to him. And so he pulls out his sword to be a good Roman man and to do it to himself. And he goes to kill himself. And at that moment— Paul was sitting in his cell with Silas, and they were having a conversation about how mean the jailer was, and how he really took away their civil rights, and how mean he was, and how God should really teach him a lesson. And so the jailer plunged his sword through his heart and died right there, bleeding all over the floor, while they were having this conversation about how they should be treated better. Do you remember that in the reading? So that's not what happened, Right? What happened was, is that the moment Paul could hear the of the sword coming out, or if there was a hall coming out, the minute he saw at the end him about to harm himself, he yelled immediately, don't hurt yourself. Don't, don't do it. Stop. Stop. We're all here. Right? And then the guy comes in trembling and falls in front of me. He says, okay, so maybe the crazy slave girl was what right? Do you know, do you know the way to be saved? And he goes, Yep. And I want you to notice that not only did Paul not hesitate, but he told him the whole story, and he led him to Christ, and he gave him all of God's grace before his wounds were even washed. Because it says, after the guy believed, then he sent for things to wash their wounds. And then Paul and Silas baptized them. His response to rectify the injustice that he created came as a response to the gospel. He, he sought to make restitution for his own ruthlessness when Jesus had come in and changed him. Then he did it. That is, once—it is true that in certain circumstances, the flood of grace has to remain hidden behind doors while the law does its work. 
Until we really recognize that before God we are dead meat, that our ruthlessness is wrapped up in our damnation, we have nothing to stand before God for our own to justify ourselves. We are living from ourselves to ourselves for ourselves. We've rejected everything possible of the knowledge of God until the law comes home and declares us contempt, until we are ready to kill ourselves with a sense of self-damnation, we actually are not ready for the word of grace yet. We just don't have any capacity to appreciate it. We don't even know what it means. It doesn't even make sense. But the moment the law has done its work, there is no delay of ourselves in releasing boldly all the graciousness of the gospel to people. And the main thing that delays it is our sense of ourselves. You see, Paul and Silas made peace with the fact that they could not be self-asserted, rights-based people and the priests of God in this situation in the same way at the same time. And in many cases, when it comes to when people really become open, after they've been ruthless to us, God does something and brings home to them the moral weight of their own ruthlessness, and they're actually under conviction, and they're prepared to seek a different way, and they know that they're dead meat before a righteous God. At that moment, they will only believe that God is profoundly forgiving if we do not hesitate and we pour forward grace without hesitation. Only then will they believe that the God that they have offended is like that also. Only when we perform our role as priest and we release our role as lawyer for ourselves. And that is a far greater test of character and virtue than just simply knowing something reasonable about human nature. And that will not happen as immediately and naturally as it must if you just believe you're supposed to forgive people because Jesus forgave you. The truth of the gospel of God's forgiving nature and that because he has forgiven us, we must forgive others has to get in a much deeper, more substantive and controlling place in our character. It must be built into virtue so we react with it. We don't have to think it through and work it out. If you're processing your hurt feelings, when what has to come forth from you is an effluence of graciousness with boldness and clarity, like declaring, don't hurt yourself. This is the gospel. You can't, you can't hesitate. You can't be processing. You can't be thinking about it. You can't be like dealing with it. And you can only do that if you are just ready for action. And that kind of certainty, that kind of strength, that kind of immediacy comes only from virtue that is built in to our characters and hard-won over long practice. And it starts with forgiving your spouse and forgiving your parents and forgiving your children and forgiving the slight you got in line at Target and forgiving— this, what this employer said to you, and forgiving that this wasn't as nice as you like, and forgiving this every time you make the gut check, so that when you actually face something significant, you're ready. Because that's the kind of person you are, not just the thing you say you believe. So many Christians fail the gut checks of their life not from ignorance of good doctrine and therefore moral truth, but for lack of virtue. 
because they think believing will be enough because belief does motivate new behavior. But that's really not how human beings, that's not really what we are. We're the kind of creatures that because of the truth and because we've put our trust in the truth through constant practice and discipline, those truths are built into our character so that we can live out virtue. Otherwise, at the moments where you need it most, it will be most absent. We need to skip this. We need to keep going. The third is, is that um, we need to offer gracious boldness to the unrepentantly abusive and unjust. This passage ends a little bit weird, right? It kind of lays out like, like Luke knows how to tell a story. So you, like, you have characters, then you have conflict, then you have escalation, and then you have, uh, and then you have resolution, and then you have the happy ending, right? And everybody's happy, and they're like having this like little buffet at the jailer's house, and um, it's this cool little cross-cultural like Palestinian Jews sitting down with like Macedonian Greeks, and they're all full of joy, and you know, there's like broken dishes everywhere from the earthquake, and like rags with blood on it from cleaning wounds and like water on stuff from baptisms and everybody's happy and everything's so awesome. And then they get their, their uh, like clean legal bill of health. Like they come and be like, you guys can go. And the jail is like, isn't that great? You guys can go. This is great. And then, and then like, it's like Luke forgets how to do literature. And he's like, and then Paul said, uh-uh. Right? Paul goes urban, you know? It's kind of a weird moment. And he's like, we ain't doing this. And he's like, they threw us in here and we're going to, right? And you're kind of like, okay, maybe Paul is a jerk. Maybe it is. Maybe Paul is a jerk. And generally speaking, um, it's very easy to read that. And I read it like that actually for years, where you read it and you're kind of like, well, aren't you a little bit angry, right? You know, I mean, you know you're not—that's not a very pious way to read it, but— um, but until you actually think through why Paul would do this, it kind of makes some sense that he's kind of like, look, you do this to us, we're going to do this to you. Like, but well, sometimes we don't think through is, there, nobody is going to believe that we believe in and follow a God of profound justice if we appear as a people to not really care about justice. And, and here, here's what Paul knew. Paul knew that if he leaves the city— what do you think these people are going to do to Lydia? Paul's a Roman citizen. Now there's already a public precedent that it's okay to just drag some Christian in front of whatever and you can beat them half to death and throw them in prison and maybe you'll let them out or not. Maybe you won't. You, you don't think they're going to strip that woman half naked publicly or entirely naked and beat her within an inch of her life at some point because she is sharing the gospel in that city with that precedent on the books? Or what about the people of that city? Do you think they're going to believe the gospel when they hear it, terrified as they will be, having seen what happened to Paul and Silas publicly? You see the issue here? That it doesn't really come home to the jailer. He's not thinking integrated gospel thoughts about justice yet. But what Paul realizes is that if he doesn't fight for a place for the gospel publicly, the church in Philippi is, gonna, is going nowhere. Now listen, I realize that a lot of evangelicals have, have come to believe that um, what Tertullian said, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And we look at our persecuted brethren in other countries and we're like, man, we really wish they'd be treated better, but the church will do better there because there's a purity that comes from persecution and the church will grow. And we've seen certain phenomenons of growth like that in places like China and Iran. Right? Around this, just this explosion of, of very quiet Christian faith. Um, and in China, over some of the worst years of the totalitarian regime there, Christianity grew 
like wildfire and, and very secretly. But there's also places like, it, first of all, you don't know the counterfactual. Would there be fewer Christians in Iran if Iran was open? We don't know. Right? But how many Christians are there in Saudi Arabia? Algeria? Libya? Morocco? Now, in recent weeks and months, former Syria and Iraq. What about Afghanistan? What about those places? You see, it is an unrealistic thing to think that the demonic work of putting the boot of tyranny on the neck of humans is mainly going to be worked for good. God can work all kinds of things for goods. But it is a fallacy of comfortable people to think that there are not thousands and perhaps millions among the personally weak that are f just frankly too terrified to stand with Jesus in such places, and that justice should be fought for, that those people would have the freedom to hear and the freedom to believe the gospel. And Paul is willing to stand up and say, listen, no, that's not okay. This is not okay. I'm not going to leave this city and let you have your boot on the necks of everybody who is a Christian and everybody who could become one because now I can go in peace. I'm not doing it. And he actually had a way to stand up because under Roman law, no local magistrate could try a Roman citizen. Part of the beauty of, royal, of Roman citizenship was you were kind of elite. I mean, you may not know this if you don't know much about the ancient world, but Roman citizen is nothing like, citizenship is nothing like American citizenship. Roman citizenship was held by a minority of Romans, people in the Roman Empire. About half the Roman Empire was slaves. But an even smaller minority of everybody else were these Roman citizens. You had to either purchase it for a large amount of money, you could win it through military exploit and also get killed trying to win it, and once it was won, it could be passed down hereditarily. Apparently Paul's father or somebody in his line had been a Roman citizen, so he was a Roman citizen. And so when they were whipped without a trial— that was actually an act of treason against the Roman government. For which these magistrates and officers, if Paul pushed this legally as far as he could, could end in their execution. Lydia may very well not be a Roman citizen. The next people that they want to beat half to death very well may not be a Roman citizen. Paul has the capacity to reset the justice structure of the way this city will relate to the church. And he realizes he has the responsibility to do it. Now, the fact that that's the case and the fact that the jailer doesn't see it could be a whole nother sermon about race and justice that I don't have time to talk about today. I'm not even sure I understand, but um, Harold and I have talked about maybe do, talking about that during our joint service this next January. Um, but in relationship to a public place for the gospel— that appears to be the main focus of what Paul is doing here. And th there is a whole strain, especially within younger evangelicalism, you know, people that like go to Jesus, gospel, and Bible-believing churches, um, but they're just old enough for there to be a cultural memory that they didn't actually live through and don't really know much about, about what was referred to as the moral majority or the Christian coalition, that there was this like Republican, we're going to force everybody to be Christian thing that allegedly happened. And like, we don't want to be that. And so let's not be political, um, even though we're going to be political and so on. 
And what's kind of lost in that is this. What the Bible actually teaches about what is actually the responsibility of those who have the strength and the capacity to fight for a public place for the gospel. We should not be romantic about about persecution or like, oh, well, Christianity is going to be more unwelcome in America. That's just the way it is. Well, listen, if you go back to right before the first Great Awakening in the 1700s, far fewer Americans went to church or cared about God. Far fewer. Right before the second Great Awakening, same deal. There was some Christianity in the upper New England states, but eh, most people were just like rough, hard and tumble individualist Americans and it was okay to shoot somebody if they came out of your homestead. Kind of, I mean, like that it was a, we were a rougher place. And what happened was Christians brought the gospel to their country, and at moments of time, God gave the grace for large numbers of people to believe it. And at times, they had to fight against those who personally attacked them and sought to stand against them in their ability to do it. Now, you might think that I'm being hyperbolic and mean. Let me, let me bring this home to roost for just a second, okay? So last quarter at a congregational meeting— we voted to give $4,000 of High Point's money, the people giving at High Point, to um, five moms who are doing a lunch at Middleton High School. The Middleton High School kids have named it the Jesus Lunch. They couldn't have it in the school, so they, um, they reserved the pavilion in Fireman's Park right next door. I mean, it's right there. You can see the school right from it. And they started out with like, you know, 75, 100 kids, whatever. Last Tuesday, there were, I think, six short of 400 students there. That's a quarter of the school coming to this, okay. Yeah, it's really cool. Coming to this Jesus lunch. Of course, that is not without its problems, right? If you work in the lunchroom, you're preparing too much food. Money is being lost. I think at Middleton High School, they're an outside contractor. So they've come in with an assumption they were going to sell a certain amount of lunches. It's part of how they structured their finances for the year. They're not happy about this, right? Um, Also, you've got the principal— I mean, God knows what phone calls of threats of being sued he's received from people who think they know the law. I mean, Madison is the home to the Freedom from Religion Society. I would be willing to bet a certain amount of money that he's already gotten a call from them and been threatened to have been sued. I don't, I don't know anything about the principal, but I can just imagine the position he's in. And so last week, when there were six fewer than 400 students there, the principal also showed up to talk with these moms. During the week, he asked them to stop meeting. Right? What— what are you supposed to do as a Christian when that happens? What is graciousness in that context? Right? Because sometimes we think graciousness is acquiescence. Okay. But grace and assertiveness are not opposites, right? Acquiescence is to say, okay, I'll go along with you. And assertiveness is to say, I'm not going to go along with you. When are you supposed to do wish? Which you can do both graciously. You see, that is not, that's not a question of if I'm a Christian, I do one or the other. You can only make that decision out of virtue and prudence. You have to know the right thing to do at the right time in the right way. That is not something that you just get automatically because you came to Jesus. Knowing what to do and how to do it and when to do it, and frankly, having the courage to know when assertiveness is courageous boldness and it must be done graciously, that is not easy. But you'd better have a category for bold, for gracious boldness, and not just, grac- and not just bold graciousness. You can be boldly gracious as long, as long as the day goes, 
But you had better, if you're going to be a holistic, substantive Christian with the kingdom of God mind, you had better also have a category for gracious boldness. And so these moms, they were just like, okay, well, let's talk about this more, but we've reserved this, and we're planning on showing up next Tuesday. We have no idea what's going to happen, right? The principal is still considering what's going on. What are we supposed to do? Right? I personally don't think acquiescence is mainly what we should do. And yet, we are not given the option to say we're acting with gracious boldness and really act ruthlessly. Which is what many Christians do under the cover of Christ. And in order to act with bold assertiveness, not acquiescence, and not Christ-caked ruthlessness, requires a substantive faith, a built-up discipleship, a deep character, a strong sense of virtue with a developed sense of prudence to know what to do in the right way, at the right time, in the right place. And friends, that does not happen without a particular kind of attitude about how we have to grow in Christ every single day. And without a recognition that every capacity of strength that we could have in Christ, we must have, because we will have to carry the weak. There are many in the city that they might believe in Jesus, they might want to believe in Jesus, but they're not going to stand up for or believe in Jesus if things get increasingly more ruthless and we won't stand up. And yet they have to see that we will not be ruthless. We will only be measuredly principled in the way that we believe is right, yet we will not back down. And when the moments come where we choose between advocating for ourselves and being God's priest of a bold graciousness, we don't hesitate. If you think that's going to happen because you showed up at church one Sunday, we're kidding ourselves. The reason I stand up here and I— I preach long and we have Bible studies and we're like, let's talk about this and let's have small groups and let's focus. It's because there is a substantiveness, an intentionality, a living with the kingdom of God in mind that has to come from a deep, deep place. Or when you get attacked, you will either acquiesce or you will attack with a Christian ruthlessness. And neither of those can be the action of our hour. Neither of those will be faithful to God in our generation. Let's pray. Father, um, as we as we recognize that we live in a ruthless world, and it's easy for us not to think that because people in our culture say it's not true, and our culture is pretty civilized given the world and its history. Um, we pray that you'd help us to realize the fact of the reality of human nature that we share with all people. There is a ruthlessness in us that is built into the fear we have whenever you attack our idolatries or whenever anybody else does, and it is an ugly and terrible heartless, shameless thing. And we pray that in all the places where that would reside in us, that Christ would break in and offend us 
and would draw us to a place of deeper repentance, of more, of more crystalled clarity, just an ability for us to see and to move towards you. Help us to have the willingness to encourage each other and afflict each other towards these ends. And we pray that you would prepare us to act with bold graciousness and gracious boldness in the right way, in the right place, at the right time, with a full prudential virtue that is full of discipleship and is formed to be like Jesus that is never surprised by any trial that we face. Help us to be the kind of people that can be thrown in stocks with bleeding backs and sing and pray. And we pray that you would shake the foundations, that you would come in power, that you would do the things that only you can do to change the situation, to cause the outcomes, because we will not believe in our control of those outcomes. We will believe that we can be an ally to good outcomes, but that we could never control them, but we have to be faithful to what you've called us to do. We pray that at this moment, um, you would help us to trust, to not not think about what we're going to do, but to start with thinking about you, Jesus, and who you really are and what it would really mean to give ourselves entirely to you. And we pray during this last song, Father, that you'd actually bring to mind places where we would withhold the grace that should boldly flow from us. I pray that in our, in our hearts, humiliating apologies would well up in us that we need to deliver this week. And forgivenesses that we have hold back, um, we would realize that we are a priest of Jesus Christ and not a lawyer for ourselves. And where forgiveness has been asked for or where we need to ask it, it would flow forward through us. And I pray, pray Father, in the places where we need to stand with boldness, though graciously, you'd help us to know when and where and how, and that you'd lead us on a path of growth so the kind of virtue we require so that we will always know would, would live in us. Holy Spirit, come and push us with some tidal wave of your might towards these things. We pray in Christ's name.